Welcome to the Houston Ensemble Podcast. We're on episode number 25 right now. We have a wonderful guest today. This is a very special guest. As they all are, every guest has their own very specific meaning. We've got with us Professor Jeffrey Kripal, Professor of Religious Studies and Head of the Religion Department at Rice University. I uh, wanted to bring on Professor Kripal because I've read... A lot of his writings, I have watched him speak, I've heard really cool things about him, he knows cool people, he does cool things, I think that he has a lot of great insight, and Armin and I wanted to bring him on to, you know, just have a have a cool conversation about all the good stuff that we like to talk about. So, Professor Kripal, thank you so much for coming, we appreciate you taking the time today. Oh, thanks. Yeah. thanks! Thanks for having me, guys. I, I'm I'm happy to be here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry it took so long. I, it's just it's my crazy schedule. I'm sorry. No, no worries at all. It's all honestly, it's all in the right time. Um, I think that's kind of how every episode is. Um, you know, I got. I'll do a little story. The the exact story of how I met Professor Kripal at Rice. I was a sophomore. And I was doing a lot of reading and a lot of just just research on kind of consciousness and esoteric type stuff. And I ended up emailing Dr. Rick Strassman, author of The Spirit Molecule, because I was actually just reaching out to see if there's any way, I don't know, that I could get involved with either research or working working in that field or anything like that and he said reach out to Jeffrey Kripal at Rice University um, he'd be a good person to talk to so I actually sent Professor Kripal an email and speaking of email and connected with him and talked with him and then ended up specifically reading um, your book Secret Body attending a couple of your talks um, getting quite a bit of mutant and mystics from Sophie, a student of yours, and, you know, I just, I think he's got a lot of good stuff to say, so for those who are listening for the first time, who don't have any idea who you are, Professor Kripal, could you maybe just tell the people about yourself, and then we can kind of go through them there? Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll try to keep it short, too, so <clears throat> I'm a professor, <laughs> I suppose that when I get asked this question on the airplane, I just say I'm a professor and I try to avoid the rest of the conversation. And then, of course, they ask, oh, you're a professor of what? And then I say, oh, well, a religion. And that that pretty much ends the conversation. So I won't we won't we won't do that here. Um, I I study what most people would think of as comparative religion. And I'm most interested in people's extreme or anomalous religious experiences that are often spontaneous, unsought, and usually don't fit in to their culture or their conceptions of reality. And I'm really interested in how those experiences end up changing those people, sometimes for the better, sometimes I think for the worse. Uh, and, and just, I'm really interested in that process. And 
I think those experiences lie behind what we think of as religion, you know, way, way down the road. They, they get picked up by cultures and communities and eventually developed into architecture and art and myth and scripture and, and become religion. So I'm interested in that whole process, although I'm not, I'm not particularly interested in any particular religion. Um, people have a strange conception of the study of religion. They think we're out to make people more religious when you know a lot of us at least are just trying to understand why people are religious and how it works mm -hmm. i know richard dawkins has a little book that i saw a long time ago and it's basically i think it's entitled like why why are people religious something like that um i went through my dawkins phase a long time ago i would say i'm <laughs> not i'm not there anymore maybe you have some thoughts on that as well yeah. I was a big, uh, big Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris. I actually like Sam Harris a lot. I think he has a lot yeah, of really, like really good Sam things Harris. to say. I like Sam Harris a lot too. I, yeah, we could talk about the those folks if you want. Can I ask you just right off the bat, where where do you lie when it comes to this idea of religion of your your personal beliefs? I'm not even assuming you believe anything, but What's going on in your head about that? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, mm -hmm. So I, you know, I describe myself as as um, weirdly and bizarrely religious, but but I don't have a religion. And what I mean by that is, I think having a religion or having a set of beliefs is is premature today. I think it kind of shuts down the conversation and shuts down the search. And I don't, I don't think human beings know why they're here or who they are or, or what they are. And I think if we're going to arrive at any even remotely adequate answers, that will come in the future. It, 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 it isn't in the past. Um, I think the past answers are interesting and we should learn from them, but I don't think we should be bound to them. So when people ask me what my religion is, I say, I don't have one. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't, I'm not committed to religious questions like who are we, what are we, what happens to us when we die, that kind of thing. I think those are the, the ultimate questions a human being can ask and, and I'm deeply committed to them. So I don't know if that answers your question, Chad. I don't mean to avoid the question. I'm just trying to be as honest with you as I can. You know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, right? We yeah, all, sure. He describes religion as a receding list of pseudo supernatural phenomena that hasn't been explained yet. So he's saying we're just going to eventually come to the point, uh, presumably, that we'll just know all the answers and then religion won't be such a big part of human existence and the human archetype whatever and i'll tell you my thought on that and then i, I want to know what you maybe think about it um the assumption here is that we're going to get to the point where we're so what technologically advanced i guess and we know where we come from and we know where the universe comes from and we find the god entity even or something i right but i uh i am of the belief that 
although we may be able to master the universe as our domain in the future sometime, although we may be able to transcend our even physical bodies, I don't think we'll ever get to the point. I don't see this penultimate point where like we're shaking hands with the creators themselves, you know, <laughs> what do you think? Well, I, so your position is not Tyson's. I mean, let's, let's kind of back up there. I mean, right. what, what he's articulating is what we call promissory, promissory materialism. And basically what that argument says is we already know what reality is. It's, it's matter all the way down. And science is the only way to know that material world. And eventually we're, our science is going to get better and better until we have the answers. And religion is going to kind of shrink. It's going to get smaller and smaller. We call that the God in the gaps argument. The God is just kind of in the gaps that, that the sciences are going to shrink and shrink and shrink. Right. So I think that's incredibly naive, uh, frankly. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. I don't think, I think science is really, really important, but it cannot know everything. It certainly can't know the answers to the questions I'm asking. Um, and in fact, if you look at the history of science, that gap has not shrunk. That gap has gotten bigger and bigger. Uh, you know, now we're told that all of science, everything we know only applies to about 4% of reality. So suddenly the gap just got basically as big as the universe. It did not shrink. It did not get smaller and smaller. It got bigger and bigger. And I think, you know, to get philosophical on you, Armin, I, science works by splitting reality into a subject in an objective world of things out there that you then manipulate and measure. And I actually don't believe in that splitting. I think that splitting is, is artificial. I think it's a function of our brains. I don't think it's what's really there. And I think once you remove that splitting, A, you make science impossible, but B, you also get much closer to the truth of, the truth of things. So no, I don't agree with Tyson. I, I, it's a very familiar argument, but I think it's deeply mistaken. I think the one of the funniest things to have happened to um, the theoretical physics community is when they all of a sudden faced quantum entanglement and the uncertainty principle. Everything prior to that was like, okay, we'll make an experiment in which, like you said, we'll have an object and an observer, and then we'll get down to this. But all of a sudden, they realize, dang, we can't even do that anymore. Mm -hmm. We can't even know what we're observing anymore. <laughs> so, like, our scientific method isn't even caught up to the nature of reality. It's like, we don't even understand how to isolate our universe anymore, mm -hmm. really. And that means that there's going to have to be some sort of paradigm shift, I think, in, in how we do science, if we're really going to get into some big questions. I'm also under the impression that somebody like Neil deGrasse Tyson is either too quick to write off some of his personal experiences, or he, he just hasn't had any personal experiences that are, uh, you know, phenomenologically true to him that kind of put a hole in what his reality might be and the reason why i appreciate 
you, Professor Kripal, is because you're simultaneously rational, but you're also sympathetic to these ideas of something essentially being unexplainable. I think, you know, you uh, held a lecture last year where Whitley Strieber joined the class and Whitley Strieber is the author, I think he's the author of multiple books, but most famously of the book Communion, where he uh, is raped by an alien, essentially, but then also develops a relationship with an alien. And he's 100% saying it's true for him, etc. Now, I'm going to try and spare Armin because he's heard it 500 times at this point, but I want to tell you, a couple nights ago, I'm having a similar experience. Not about the alien, <laughs> but... Um, an unexplainable type experience where actually me and Sophie and another friend were all outside watching the moon and we're seeing all these crazy colors pop off of it. And her one friend sees like a red star go into the moon. But then as we actually end up watching the moon, our eyes just locked on it for probably, you know, five minutes straight. I said, wow, the moon is actually moving. And to clarify, there are no clouds in the sky. It's a full moon. It's probably the the day after the full moon. So it's just on the verge of waning down. And uh, after locking our eyes on it for a really long time and just staring at it, we realized that it was moving around in the sense that it looked like somebody had taken a mouse cursor, clicked on it, and would drag it down slightly or drag it to the right or to the left. And what is interesting is that all three of us saw this and confirmed it and on top of that when it would move down in this sort of direction i would actually call out the cardinal directions like i'd say okay it's moving northeast right now or it's moving southwest and they all agreed to it sophie and her other friend they agreed and uh you know the day after i'm telling a bunch of people because it was so crazy for me and of course i concede absolutely concede that maybe something with my eyes or atmosphere but whatever but I've never seen that happen before it was completely unnatural I actually looked it up the next day saw some saw somebody talking about it and basically it was just talking about the moon being a hologram not even going to say that's accurate but it makes me even more sympathetic to this idea of it's hard to prove things it's hard to know things and I know that you understand this yeah, I'm not. <clears throat> I mean, that's the kind of experiences that interest me so much, not because I understand what's going on. I, I don't. But what I'm interested in is how that ends up changing your own or your you and Sophie and her friend's sense of reality. I mean, to me, that's, mm -hmm. that's interesting. And, you know, just to go back to Tyson for a moment, who, of course, I don't know. And I, I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical of, of the scientists, but you know, it's easy to say you know what reality is when you've never had one of these experiences. Mm. It's it's very difficult to say what reality is after you've had such an experience. And these experiences are not publicly available. They're not measurable. They're not replicable. Um, but they're part of the human experience. And so that's what interests me. I mean, my, I'm in the business of understanding religious experience. I'm not in the business of being an astronomer or a chemist or a biologist or something. So I, I, I honor and appreciate those fields, but I don't confuse them with 
understanding religious experience because they don't. Mm-hmm. Is there is there somebody that um, you look to today that is kind of speaking on a similar matter who is speaking like you or trying to bring awareness to this? Well, there's there's dozens, if not hundreds of people, Chad. I mean, there's there's a lot of people working in the zone now, including a lot of scientists, by the way, that they're not they're not all in the humanities or in the study of religion. They're all over the all over the intellectual landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, I know that there are people. So it, that sounded like a wacky question, but may, I'm kind of thinking somebody that comes to your mind that people should maybe go refer to besides yourself (laughs) well of course nobody's going to believe a nutty professor of religion they're they're gonna they're gonna want to go talk you know see what the scientists say because they think that science is the only way of knowing anything no we would (laughs) yeah we would (laughs) you know so i you know there was just a new foundation that began or was started a couple weeks ago in europe called the essentia foundation e-s-s-e-n-t-i-a and I would look at that website. It's, it's filled with philosophers and neuroscientists and physicists and you know, very serious intellectuals, all basically trying to say something similar, mm. which is that reality isn't what it seems to be and that this matters on a cultural level. It's not just a, a wacky tangential uh, pursued, it actually matters to the future of our, our Western civilization and, and to human culture as a, as a whole, actually. So I, I would go there and I would look at those people. Um, I mean, there are lots of talks. There's lots of things to read and to listen to. Um, it's a very serious enterprise. I uh, was going to share something with you guys. Uh, I, I've told Chad about this um and maybe you've heard about this as well. And just a full disclaimer for everybody. Um, if I'm about to say something that's in the quote-unquote realm of conspiracy theory, I'll let you know. But this is this is not no conspiracy theory, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so Johns Hopkins was doing a massive experiment where they were basically getting volunteers to anonymously report their psychedelic experiences. And they were doing this on an international level. So you could go to this specific web, uh, this specific page on their website, <clears throat> fill out their report, blah, blah, blah. And their aim was to see if they could actually map out the areas that those people were, quote-unquote, traversing in. Hmm. So that's reminiscent of the spirit molecule stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's also – there have been massive experiments there where all these, you know – Educated people, professors, were in a controlled environment, intravenously introduced mm-hmm. to what? What was it? The spirit molecule. Mm-hmm. And they all documented the experiment. So it seems like there's been preced- a precedent for this kind of work for many, many years. 
mm-hmm. on a uh, institutional level. And also we know that the government has done a lot of research on these chemicals as well. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts, Professor? <laughs> Is this a totally anthropomorphic experience or is there any credence to the argument that we might actually be touching on a different realm? So again, so this is a huge topic. I mean, human beings have been ingesting psychoactive plants and drinking psychoactive brews for thousands and thousands of years. It did not begin at Johns Hopkins a few years ago. You know, it's been going on literally for as far as we can see back in the human record. And a lot of these states are the origin of what we think of as religion, you know, visionary experiences, otherworldly journeys, afterlife communications. A lot of these were were, um, catalyzed or made possible by these psychoactive substances. What the materialist will say, who operates with the assumption that consciousness is strictly produced by the brain, the materialist will say that these are just the molecules messing with the neurons of the brain and creating these hallucinations, right? That the hallucinations are just essentially projections of the brain on drugs, to put it in a blunt way. What the practitioners or the shamans or the the psychedelic mystics will say is maybe but it sure doesn't feel or seem that way it it seems more like the body and the brain are essentially receivers of some kind of signal and that these psychoactive substances allow it to open up and to receive more of the signal that's coming in all the time Now, as someone who studies religion, what I always am interested in is the role of the imagination, of course, in these experiences. And I think this is what you're getting at. These experiences are always quite dramatic, quite quite robust. Um, And clearly the human imagination is translating whatever it is that's happening. Now you can say it's projecting it, and it's a set of hallucinations, but you can also say that the imagination is filtering what's there and it's essentially translating that presence or that greater reality into something that person can understand. And I think that question's an open one, Armin. I don't think we know. I think the materialist answer is too quick and it's too easy, Mm -hmm. Um, but I also don't actually buy the believer's answer which is it's it's literally true you know it's it's all happening the way it seems to be happening i think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. that that something is being accessed there's something being experienced in the environment but it's being mediated by the human psyche and and all of the cultural baggage as it were that comes with it um let me let me put let me put it in a metaphor i often use If you take your smartphone, your smartphone cannot communicate to you the entire content of the World Wide Web or the internet. It won't do it. It has to reduce that massive amount of information 
that that you know six billion people or ever how many people are on that internet and it has to reduce it into this tiny little object that you can hold in your hand and that you can create a personal interface with it has to translate it and it has to select out from that vast amount of information that does not mean that your cell phone creates the internet right mm. right yeah. actually the, the internet allows your cell phone to work um and that's the, I think that's the materialist mistake. What they're saying is that the, the brain creates consciousness, where I actually think right. the reverse is true. Consciousness, in fact, has evolved the brain to essentially receive itself into, into a biological organism, in this case called a human being. Mm -hmm. But we, we don't know that. It, it, it works, right. you know, the model works either way, as a good neuroscientist will tell you. They cannot actually tell which of those is true. Um, yeah, that's always like, you know, I actually, um, do you know Uriah Kriegel? Yes, I do. He's also, a, he's a professor of philosophy there. And he came on the podcast a while back and we had a very interesting discussion about this. Um, I'm curious for you, Professor Kripal, if tomorrow Elon Musk said to you, we can put a Neuralink in your brain and actually give you an infinite lifespan, would you do it? Uh, um, <laughs> I wouldn't believe him, to be, to, for one thing. I, I don't know what he means by that. I mean... Let's, let me make it a little simpler for you. Let's say, actually, Elon Musk said, we're going to transfer your consciousness into a uh, you know, silicon-based... No, I, I, I think that's silly. I would do it. That 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 argument assumes that the basis of consciousness is material, right? Yeah. And and I don't believe that. I think that's the opposite of the case, actually. So I just don't believe what he's saying is possible, because I'm operating with a very different model of mind and matter than than Mr. Musk is. Yeah, and. I thought it was very interesting. Um, Professor Kriegel actually said the opposite of you. He said he would 100% transfer his consciousness into a body and choose to live forever. And uh, that is with the assumption that that is possible. I actually, am, I have this kind of gut feeling, by the way, it doesn't mean anything, but it's just my gut feeling that when we get to this point of trying to transfer let's say we figure it out and we get to this point of transferring the consciousness to another thing i don't i feel like it's not going to work because i feel like as you're saying it's not really a thing that is made in that sense and rather it's more of this uh amorphous pervading signal that can be received by the brain and is actually permeating through everything that's just my opinion, but well, it's similar can, to what you're saying. Yeah, so I can, so I can tell you historically, human beings have been transferring consciousness into other material objects for thousands of years, but it has nothing to do with artificial intelligence. I mean, this was known as possession, um, or you could, you know, the 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 gurus in in medieval India could transfer their consciousness into another human being and take over their body, or that was the belief anyway. So this, 
this dream or this idea that one can transfer consciousness into another physical form did not originate with the computer scientists of the 20th or 21st century. It's ancient, but the ancient belief is the reverse or the opposite of the computer scientist conviction. You know, the computer scientist is working with the assumption that if they create a computer chip that's sophisticated enough and small enough, it will become conscious. The, the ancient religious models are operating with the reverse model that actually consciousness is not material at all and that it can inhabit different material forms, you know, essentially at will. So it's the reverse or the flip of, of the, the computer AI model. And so that's why I'm so suspicious of the, of the Musk model. Um, plus I don't have, I don't see why I would want my personal consciousness to exist forever. That seems like a really bad idea actually. You know, uh, I think about this question and um, I only see it working accidentally. And this is what I mean by that. <clears throat> so it would, it can work accidentally and only probably in this scenario. We recreate a perfect substrate for the biological brain, a perfect oh. interface. It accounts for every synaptic connection it perfectly recreates the electron, the electron flow of information, blah, 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 blah. And then somehow that winds up being a, a, a perfect transmitter, like you said, mm -hmm. an ideal transmitter for a consciousness to then sneak into. But we won't, we, won't, we won't really know that. All we know is that, see, we just made the brain. It works. <laughs> you know? Um, that's a cool idea. That's a cool idea. But here's another cool idea. You don't have to <laughs> say anything about it. But what's scary to me is reading the reports of some of the intravenous experiences. And because we were talking about, does the brain create the illusion or is it coming from elsewhere? Well, what does this say about it? So when these people have their eyes open, the hallucinations are much more mild and strikingly different than when they close their eyes. Mm -hmm. When they close their eyes, all of a sudden, it's a completely different world. They're seeing uh, uh, like absolutely you know, unbelievable things like entities and cities and worlds and... Then they open their eyes, it's all gone. Yeah. And I wonder what that is, right. if there's a scientific explanation for that. Is it the darkness of the eyelids that allows the brain to create more material from the imagination? Yeah. You know, what is that? Or even just kind of maybe going uh, into your inner universe. And, you know, somebody that we talked to the other day actually said that he ha had spoken with two people that were important to him that had passed away and that was my first time ever hearing it from somebody I knew and mm. so that's pretty important to me because he feels like that was 100% true for him in that experience and he's not one to just go around lying about it I know that so 
the fact that we can access that or have that experience is, is, is huge. But so, so that's, that's the origin of religion right there, Chad. I mean, that, yeah. you know, you, you encounter an ancestor or a dead loved one who is speaking to you or communicating with you in some way. And then you develop this belief in a, in a soul that survives bodily death. I mean, that's the origin of religion right there. Mm-hmm. But of course, that experience presumes that consciousness is not the body, right? Because yeah. the body's rotting away, you know, somewhere, or was, you know, burnt to ashes or is rotting away in the ground. And your grandfather or your loved one is still communicating with you, you know, in, in a recognizable personality. So that experience assumes a very different model of consciousness than the materialist model that we're, we're operating with today. It's uh, also, in, I don't think I said it. It's interesting that he said grandfather specifically because it was his grandfather. Yeah, it often is. <laughs> <laughs> it's odd. Um, you know, not, one. Not really. I mean, grandparents tend to die before their children or their, or their grandchildren. It was, uh, yeah, it was his grandfather, but it was also his, uh, one of his roommates. His roommate had also died. And so he was able to speak with both of them. But um, one thing that I want to get into, this is a little bit different, but it's related to all this because you, uh, and correct me, I'm not exactly fully up to date. Are you still on the board of directors at the Esalen Institute or the director, I mean? So it's it's the board of trustees. And yes, I'm still on the board of Esalen. Okay. And for... You know, and you can speak about it more, but for people who don't know that an Esalen Institute uh, in brief is kind of a spiritual center for people to come and take workshops and meditate and be in nature. And it's in Big Sur, California, and uh, a lot of extremely well-known people in the world of I'll just call it esoteric mysticism, have gone through there. And I was wondering if, Professor Kripal, you could maybe tell us what is going on there right now or what not. Because, I'm again, I'm still trying to go. And I was going to go back after I talked to you, but that got held up. Well, the short answer is very little's going on because of COVID. I mean, Esalen, like the rest of the world, has been shut down since last March. And, you know, it start, it's tried to start up again multiple times, but it keeps getting shut down by the state of California. And, uh, you know, so, you know, the short answer is nothing's happening there at the moment. I mean, the hope is, is that it'll, it'll regenerate and, and open back up here fairly soon, but so far it hasn't. Did you ever go to the Esalen Institute back in the day, like 80s, 90s? No, because I was just a kid. I my first visit to Esalen was in 1998. Mm. So that was 20, 23 years ago now. But I've listened to a lot of Terrence McKenna talks uh-huh. at Esalen yeah. Institute, and I always just wish that I could be there in person, just listening to him. Can I tell you a really, really uh, crazy synchronicity? You might just enjoy this story. Sure. About yeah. Terrence. Yeah. I was at a farmer's market here in Houston at the Urban Harvest Farmer's Market. And we were walking around. And we went up to this booth that he was selling 
uh, mushrooms like lion's mane, oyster mushrooms, chanterelles, etc. And we looked at, we didn't really look at him yet. We just looked down and it's called Flying Saucer Farms. And we, looked at his bi- and we looked at his business card. It was a really cool, like, animated flying saucer with an eye in it and mushrooms. And you're like, oh, yeah. Okay, he obviously is going for the psychedelic trope, which is fun. And uh, my one friend was like, is this a joke about the stoned ape theory? And he's like, oh, no, not at all. And then and then we actually looked up at him for the first time and looked at his outfit and what he was wearing. And he was wearing a shirt that had a full-on lifelike ape's face on it. And we were like, oh, is that is that the joke right there, the stone ape theory? And he's like, oh, my God, no, not at all. And we're like, you do know what that is, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, totally. And subsequently, we had him on the podcast. His name is Clint Urich. He's a, he grows some of like the finest mushrooms in Houston for amazing restaurants. And uh, we're good friends with him now. But... So none of it was about the stone ape theory. Fine. I bought my mushrooms and we left. Well, I'm driving on the road uh, right next to Rice by the Contemporary Art Museum. And for some reason, a little color catches my eye. And I look onto the corner and read the stoplight. And I see this kid reading a book. And he turns the book. And it's Food of the Gods by Terrence McKenna. <laughs> which is the book on the stoned ape theory. And I said, oh my God, my reality is coming to a crashing halt right now because I've never seen anybody read that. I've read it. I've never (laughs) seen it in person though, besides me having the book or anything like that. So the fact that all of that happened in one day was uh, truly amazing. And uh, I don't, sometimes it gives me hope and sometimes it just frightens me to death when the synchronicities are so so grandiose that you're kind of worried (laughs) i tend to ignore the grandiose ones because i'm like i can't deal with this right now (laughs) (laughs) what what is your thought on on the synchronicities professor freipel well i've thought a lot about synchrony i mean first of all it's a word that was coined by carl jung and in conversation with a physicist by the way named wolfgang pauli and Pauli, what's interesting about that relationship is Pauli was essentially a walking poltergeist. You know, things would break and explode and blow up around him. The joke in, in Europe was that you never wanted Pauli to come into your physics laboratory because something was going to break. Um, so Pauli was also deeply emotionally and sexually conflicted. And was in therapy for a good share of his life around these things too. So these poltergeist phenomena probably had something to do with his own emotional conflict. And it was out of that relationship between Pauli and Jung that Jung coined the word synchronicity. Pauli didn't like it actually, because it implies a temporal dimension. And Pauli didn't think that temporality was was particularly significant in these, these moments. Mm. Um, I mean, what do I think about them? I think they happen a lot. Um, I think people have to choose what to do with them. I think they're signs that can guide a life, but don't have to. I think at that moment that, that, that coincidence or synchronicity happened to you, you had to choose to see it as, as a sign and you had to choose to pursue it or to forget about it. 
And I think human beings do different things. I think a lot of us just forget about those experiences. Some of us take them as signs and act on them and, and change our lives accordingly. Um, but they're, again, they're ancient. Uh, human beings have been talking about those things for thousands and thousands of years. And I think they, they give some witness to a kind of reality that's not spatially or temporally located that, you know, there's this greater reality we're embedded in and it shows up in our lives sometimes as those, those synchronicities. Mm -hmm. Every time I basically feel like my mom's going to call me and she does. Yeah. Like I ba like nine times out of ten, I can actually sense when my mom's gonna call me. Mm -hmm. But and, that's not, and yeah. and and you know that could that could very well maybe is because there's a certain schedule by which she calls me. I will say though, it's it tends to be quite random. You know, it, I I try to be as skeptical about it as possible because I think well, first of all, that's my mother, and I came out of her. Like I share her DNA, I share her brain, I share her lifestyle and way of thinking. I'm probably programmed similar. That's why I can probably predict when she's gonna call me. You know what I mean? But then, like you say, Professor, it's like I when I go into this hyper obs observationalist skeptical mindset, it just seems kind of shallow. It doesn't seem like it's really explaining much. Yeah. You know, and or if I think about it, I'm um, like I'll, sometimes like I'm really thinking very hard about a person and then I'll see something from them the next day that indicates to me they were thinking about me or whatever. Like you can choose to look into things and go too far. But speaking well, of uh, so, Armin, yeah. your your experiences, I wouldn't describe your experiences as synchronicities. I would describe them as, as precognitions or potential precognitions. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I think human beings are naturally precognitive and that we're constantly getting hits, you know, from the near future. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't surprise me at all, particularly, by the way, from loved ones. Mm -hmm. um, I think human beings who are emotionally entangled, like parents and children or lovers or grandparents and, and and grandchildren i mean i think those human beings are much more likely to have these precognitions around one another than than with complete strangers because i think there's a deep emotional rapport yeah. or resonance that gets set up between between human beings and there's an energy with emotion and yeah so I mean, yes, it's the, when you see the demeanor of a person walking into the room, yes, that can give you a lot of cues, okay? But when, when an entire room basically changes by someone walking in, that's an energetic phenomenon. So mm -hmm. it, it stands to reason that you could probably even measure that energy if we knew how. Yeah, that's palpable, really. Mm -hmm. Um, and going, you reminded me of the word precognition, and I said, "Where, where did I hear that so much?" And then I realized it's actually partially because of you, Professor Kripal, uh, regarding the book Time Loops. Yeah, where you are mentioned in in the foreword of that, I believe, as the kind of like main reason he wrote the book. And Time Loops is this really great book about essentially 
precognition and uh, just time and how it works and our experiences and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I just I'm just going to recommend everybody to go read it because it was really profound. And so so that's Eric Wargo. I and of course, I thank you for saying that, but I'm sure I wasn't the main reason Eric wrote the book. I, I was certainly one of his um, interlocutors for sure. He's since written another book called Precognitive Dreamwork, The Long Self. Mm. And, you know, Eric's basic argument, first of all, Eric's a materialist. Um, but of a very, very sophisticated sort. Um, he thinks that we're, we're all precognitive and that we precognize the next day in our dreams. Um, but that like, like all dreams, these precognitions are, get coded, they get displaced, they get condensed, they get reversed, they get symbolized. And so we, we don't recognize what it is we're dreaming about until sometimes after the event. And then we remember our dream. Uh, and that, you know, this is of course related to a kind of deja vu experience as well. Yeah. But Eric thinks that it's the physical brain that is precognizing itself in the future and that it's all spread out essentially in space-time in one big space-time block and that what a precognition is, is that the brain here, or the brain here is sending a signal back to the brain here. Oh, it's all one physical brain spread out in time now. Mm. Um, and that this is just what a human being is. It's just the human being is a hyperdimensional organism that has access to the future as well as the past. Are you worried at all about the rapid development of some of these technologies regarding AI, regarding life and, you know, biological enhancement, or even, for example, an article came out yesterday or two days ago about Disney trying to create using uh, a robot with eyes looking into other people's eyes to give it the most real facial expression possible. Are you worried about this? Because I'm a little bit worried about it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what I mean. I'm worried about facial recognition and you know uh, the intelligence state, for example, or security issues. But I don't know if I am worried about AI itself, um, even if it's unrecognizable from a human. Well. Honestly, I think we're the ultimate AI. You know, you you know, we've all seen this movie where these movies where the the AI robot is so human and he or she doesn't realize that he or she is AI, right? The right. The, the robot thinks it's human. Right. <laughs> and I think that's actually a kind of sci-fi projection of our actual situation. I I don't think we're who we think we are. And, mm. and I think we're essentially AI um, of some other greater mind or consciousness. And we think we're Chad or Armin or Jeff, but actually we're just the AI robot, uh, you know, uh, manifesting some, something else. Um, it's sort of my worldview actually. So, so does AI bother me? No, it doesn't. I, I think we're, probably going to learn something from it i would agree with that 
Now, let me go down a totally different pathway, because if we're thinking like that, then we really shouldn't be worried about anything. We should just move along, go forth, whatever happens, happens. I'm not saying that either, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Well, now I know that. How about uh, uh, Rice was funded along with MIT recently uh, in a joint partnership for, uh, I believe, by the Gates Foundation to study a quantum dot tattoo. And there's uh, this... Kevin J. McHugh uh, is the head of McHugh Laboratories at Rice, and he's the kind of the lead scientist working on this. Basically, this maybe you already know about it, but it's a essentially a tattoo that's on you that can be scanned um, and would be able to tell the government or some sort of database or like an airplane or whatever. Oh, you've been vaccinated. Oh, you have enough money in your bank account. Oh, you've got your criminal record here. What do you think about that? Well, I think those are, I mean, I don't think anything about that, Chad, because I haven't thought about it. I mean, you're the first person to ever ask me about it. I, I think that's getting into issues of privacy and, and the security state. And we want to be careful about that kind of thing. But, you know, I think we're moving in that direction anyway, frankly. I mean, yeah. You know, we have we have technological ability right now to encode medical records, for example, that someone can carry around and when they have a heart attack or an accident or something, just hand it to the medical team and they can plug it in and read the whole medical history. I mean, that to me is actually quite useful. Yeah. That can be abused, of course. Um, yeah. We put chips in in our pets right mm -hmm. now, right? Mm -hmm. I mean we're That's using these technologies. So I, I don't know. I think, I think there are, there are serious ethical questions there and I don't want to diminish them, mm -hmm. but I just haven't thought about them. So I don't, I don't really know what to say. Yeah. I'm just curious. That's something that I think about a lot. It makes, it makes me worried a little bit, especially when we're in the time period that we're, that we're in, because like you said, they're amazing benefits to that technology. Um, but I'm also worried that the technology might be hijacked in a sort of quote unquote emergency time. And then like you're saying, our privacy or the intelligence, and we already, we already know all about well, that. That's, that's basically the plot line of a hundred different sci-fi movies and, you know, paranoid fantasies, right? I mean, that's, you've essentially articulated the, a very familiar plot line. And I know that, um, we're going to let you go here soon because I think we only wanted to get around an hour with you. So thank you, by the way, for being here. My last question for you is what do you see for basically the country but humanity going forward? Do you feel that it's a brighter path do you, or do you feel that it's a darker path? What does your heart tell you? I, you know, again... So I think we all think about these things biographically or autobiographically. Mm -hmm. When I was your age, and I remember being your age, Chad, the world was much worse off than it is right now. Um, you know, it was 19, in 19, well, 1980, I had to um, appear for the, I didn't have to appear for the draft, but I had to register in case there was a draft. And we were looking at 
an exchange of hundreds, if not thousands of nuclear warheads between the Soviet Union and the US and the destruction of human civilization as we knew it, including the entire environment. And that was not a fantasy. That was not an exaggerated fear. That was a very real possibility in 1980, um, which was pretty bad. It was sort of the nadir of the Cold War. Um, today, of course, we have all kinds of crises, none of which I want to underestimate, but we're, we're not actually looking at a complete nuclear holocaust at the moment. Um, so I think things are go up and down and I don't, I'm neither a Pollyannish utopian idealist that things are just gonna get better and better but neither am I a conspiracy dystopian thinker where I think things are gonna get worse and worse. I think it depends on us. I actually, I think it depends on you. <laughs> I, I think it depends on the younger generations and what what they do with this and how smart they are and how sophisticated they are and not to fall into these easy black or white up or down solutions which i think are quite dangerous um so i don't know i i don't know i i i i'm neither i'm neither it's all going to be great or it's all going to be bad kind of guy i'm i'm like this it's really up to us and what we decide as a species. Um, I think I think I'm I'm actually pretty much there with you in the sense that I don't I wouldn't say I really know. I'll be honest. Some of the things that I see, especially you know in our government and and some of the actions that have been taken, they they're red flags to me, and I I'm worried about some of that, and I feel like people that tell me they don't see that I. I'm worried that you're blocking so, it. So again, I think this is an autobiographical thing, Chad. You know, when I again, when I was your not to go back to when I was your age, when I was when I was a kid, when I was young, it's good. Um, you know, I was super super pious and and very religious in a Christian sense, and I saw the world as fallen, and I saw um, a lot of poverty, and I saw a lot of nuclear buildup, and I saw a lot, a lot of social injustice all of which was there and all of which was true in the 1970s and is still with us now in abundance. So, you know, I sort of began my adult life posed against the culture. And I think I'm still there. I, I, I still consider that a real intellectual is going to always be countercultural he or she is always going to be poised against whatever the status quo is. And I believe that, and I think that's a good thing, but I'm also very aware that the culture itself supports that. Um, you know, there's a kind of irony here that intellectuals might think of themselves as, as countercultural, but they're actually also at the heart of the culture. culture. Right. And, and so I guess I have a lot of hope um, in culture and civilization that it can write itself and it can critique itself and it can counter itself um, and not let itself just run away with some kind of certainty that will be devastating and destructive. There's a lot of, there's a lot of counter movement in any culture that I think is very healthy. Um, so I don't know, that's, that's someone at 58 speaking, Chad. I, I, 
I don't, I'm not, and I don't know if that's true or not, or if that will win the day. God forbid something could happen to really lose the day, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, you know. It, not to be too corny, but I think the reason we depict good as always being triumphant in the end is that that has been f- by and large the human experience mm-hmm. is that it tends to work out okay so then we we romanticize that feeling or we put on our rose tinted glasses and we think well it tends to work out and it does tend to work out you know because so, there's only the destination at the end and the journey is the journey so here so here's here's something to think about you have to decide at some point whether you think human nature is essentially good or whether it, whether it's essentially bad and I happen to think it's essentially good. But the reason I think that is because I've raised two children. Mm. And what I really and truly believe is that in the vast majority of cases, and I know there are exceptions, but in the vast majority of cases, human beings are born good. Mm-hmm. And then we fuck them up. Right. Mm-hmm. Children small children do not hate Mm -hmm. they are not bigots they are not racist Mm -hmm. they learn hate they learn bigotry they learn racism from their parents and of course we also mess them up in all sorts of unconscious and unintended ways simply simply by raising children so but but small children are themselves essentially good and and I and I think that's what drives my own kind of take on life. Um, I often say I I don't really trust a philosopher who hasn't raised a child. Mm. And the reason I say that isn't because I don't read all kinds of philosophers who haven't raised children. I mean that eliminates most of the canon, by the way. Um, but it's because if you raise a child, you will have hope. And if, you, and if you don't raise a child, I can see where you can land in a place of no hope and darkness and mm-hmm. conspiracy and everything else. Um, yeah, but I, the, think, mm-hmm. I, I really believe that. I mean, that might sound corny to you, but no, I really I think that. children are, are kind of the secret, the secret sauce here in some ways. <laughs> also, they provide purpose. You know, they just provide... An, a 100% tangible purpose it's it's the purpose it's also all of a sudden you're like holy shit I just made something Mm -hmm. that has a consciousness and it's a reflection of me and I'm a reflection of them and then that your whole perspective just explodes but here's the other thing Armin that happens so before I had children I thought I think like a lot of naive young people that people are born as blank slates Mm -hmm. and then we imprint on them our personalities and our families and all this stuff that we essentially make them like us i don't believe that for a second after having two two children those two human beings came out of my wife's body as different species 
they, they are di- they came from different planets mm-hmm. and we did not do that <laughs> okay uh, I so i don't and i like i often joke screw the blank slate i believe in reincarnation i mean that's yeah that's a way better explanation than the blank slate and i'm not saying i actually believe in reincarnation either i'm just saying that if you have children and you realize how different they are and that you had nothing to do with that as a parent then it's very humbling and you realize that there's something about the mystery of human life that isn't actually isn't about culture it's not about how you raise them. It's- I was going to, yeah, I was going to say that to you, actually. I was going to ask you that um, because I've heard that quite a few times before from parents where they say they just came out and ha- they're totally locked into a personality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's really uh, kind of weird. Have you heard about this new movie by Disney that came out called Soul? Sure, I've heard of it. I haven't watched it. Uh, I've watched part of it so far. One, on a musical level, like in that's what Armin plays guitar by the way he's an amazing guitarist and we're in a band together so we're into music here but um on a musical level it's amazing and they've got all the right you know uh notes on the piano and the saxophone etc but it's all about dying and being reborn and the soul and where it goes and what's funny is they have this uh pre-earth realm spoilers yeah spoiler alert but pre-earth realm where all these little people little blue souls are there and they have badges and they get all these attributes so they're like sports funny uh, (laughs) aggressive something and then they have this one last thing and it's their spark and it's basically kind of their what makes them unique or what they're attracted to in life and they go through this place called the hall of everything and it's literally a you know infinite hall of everything that's on earth and they'll find their spark and once they get their spark boom they shoot out and they go to earth and then they're born so uh and then and then when they die they're on a path to this infinite light and when they hit the infinite light they actually do like an rgb kind of electric glitch and i was pretty put off when i saw that <laughs> but anyway i'll let you watch the movie at some point okay. I think I think uh, we can end it here. I know you got a lot of stuff going on. So, Professor Kripal, thank you so much for just joining us for a cool conversation today. Uh, really appreciate you. Appreciate everything you do at Rice and you know aiding my experience. So, I'm really thank glad you. you. I I appreciate the invitation, guys, and I I'm ha- I'm happy happy to talk about whatever, <laughs> whether I whether I know something or not. Yeah, I mean, uh, hopefully. Um we didn't disappoint you on some of our questions. <laughs> no, 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 it, no, the conversations went in an interesting down, interesting yeah. paths. Let's put yeah. it that way. We try to keep it interesting. <laughs> yeah. We're a little, if you even watch some other videos, you'll be like, okay, okay. We'll go wherever we'll, we'll do. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so everybody, this has been Houston ensemble episode 25 with professor Jeffrey Kripal of rice university. We're gonna link. Uh, we're gonna link his information. We're gonna link the books that he's written. I highly recommend you go and read that. I highly recommend you apply to Rice and maybe try and take a class. <laughs> but anyway, we'll see you next time on the Houston Ensemble Podcast, Professor Kripal. Thank you so much. Uh, I'll be in touch with you in the future at some point. Okay. Have a good one, sir. Thanks, Armin. And thanks thanks so much. So we'll see you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, bye bye. Bye.